0: The fascinating story of the Judy Garland Show continues in the second part of our interview with Garland at Wizard of Oz expert John Fricky on the TV Retrovision Podcast. Bill Colleran comes in and um, gets rid of some of the cruddy comics. He brings in more people who sing. He brings in writers with a sense of humor. On the very first show uh, they did, they had a little bit more of the deprecatory humor, but it was done very, very cleverly. Bob Newhart was the comedy guest. And he had done his monologue, and the show was about half over. And all of a sudden, you saw this middle-aged couple, you know, in bathrobes watching TV with their glasses on. And it was Judy and Bob Newhart. And they're talking about the Judy Garland show. (laughs) And and Bob Newhart is talking about how, oh, look at Bob Newhart. They didn't, you know, uh, he paid $2,000 for that thing. And Judy said, what thing? And Bob Newhart taps his toupee and says, he doesn't even make sure it's centered. And, and and Judy says, well, what about her? You know, she hasn't sung a note in years. She just moves her lips to old records. And Bob Newhart says, well, she sang I Left My Heart in San Francisco two weeks ago. That's a new song. And Judy said, nah, they just speeded up the Tony Bennett record. And it, you know, <laughs> See, that's they, good. They got that's all good. the light bulbs on her runway so that she won't fall off. Yeah. You know, again. And then and then when Bob Newhart says, oh, she's going to sing. And Judy reaches for the dial and says, oh, let's get that other channel with that Western. I mean, that's this good. was, yeah, that's, that's funny. That's yeah. That was good, good writing, but it was just too late, yeah. uh, too little, too late. You know, collarin did the shows with the guest stars that were signed, um, but um, when they canceled the show, middle of January, um, they allowed Judy to cancel. They gave her the graceful mo- movement of saying, "I need I cannot produce these shows." and give my children the time and attention they deserve. Right. And Bill Aubrey, the president of CBS, who was a colossal... I mean, he's the one who was ousted from CBS the next year okay. for all this kind of chicanery and, and duplicitous business dealings and, and payoffs and stuff. <clears throat> and uh, it's it just the negativity surrounding... Her, CBN, Mike Dan, again, in 2003, was so apologetic but he said the show failed because of our attempts to force her into being somebody she wasn't right absolutely yeah, he, said it, it was, it, he said it was entirely cbs's fault and uh not that this would save her but there you have it um you know 30 years 40 years later anyway um they canceled the shows now judy the first week, Coleran was there. There had been a hiatus while they were switching over. The first week, Coleran was there. Uh, the guests were to be Bobby, Darren, and Bob Newhart. Fine, but that preceding Friday, they were to start again on Monday. Friday, November twenty-second, nineteen sixty-three, Kennedy was assassinated. Now, Judy was, had campaigned for him. They were friends. Oh yeah. And she would pick up the phone and call him. He would ask her to sing over the rainbow over the phone. <laughs> I bad, mean, yes. it, was, it was a very comfortable, you know, non-sexual. But JFK knew how special she was, and vice versa. There's a wonderful uh, video clip um, of a, a dinner at the White House, the premiere of A Child is Waiting, which was done as a benefit for the Joseph Kennedy Foundation because, of course, President Kennedy's sister Rosemary was mentally... Yes. Uh, Challenged, yes. Um, and so Stanley Kramer, Burt Lancaster, Judy—they're all there on the da- dais with the president and the vice president and the first lady, and, and uh, at the end JFK they had seen the picture. They had dinner, and then Judy did like a mini concert afterwards. And Kennedy is being very formal and saying all of his thank yous. He said to Mister Kramer, Mister Lancaster, Miss Garland, and then he stops and smiles and smiles and says, "Our old friend," <laughs> nice. uh, which is lovely. They, they, there was that bond. She had had a house on the Kennedy compound with Lorna and Joe and Liza the summer of 1961 in Cape Cod when she was in between concerts on, that, on the Carnegie Hall tour. Wow. So again, she got back to CBS after the week of the assassination, the funeral, Jack Ruby, all of that stuff. And she called Collarin in. She'd met him, but uh, they, this was the beginning of their work week, and she said, I, I want to scrap the show this week. And he said, I understand. Uh, uh, well, you know, we can." And he, she said, no, you don't understand. I want to do a show. I just don't want to do the show we planned. And she said, I have a feeling that right now we need an affirmation of, of, of America and its values. So I want to do a one-woman concert of great songs like America the Beautiful and Keep the Home Fires Bur- Burning. She said, not much talk, if any. She said, I'm not going to talk about Jack Kennedy, but we have to have a reaffirmation of faith in our country wow. and Colleran flipped he thought it could be one of the greatest hours in television history and Aubrey said no oh my god Aubrey said uh, Colloran I we interviewed Colloran uh, in 1980 something and uh, he said he said, uh, Coleran said I'll never forget Aubrey said by the time that show goes on the air meaning in a couple in eight weeks six weeks he said by then the country will have forgotten all about Kennedy okay. this is what she was up against and she was livid and she went ahead and did the show with Bobby Darren and Bob Newhart and then did the other show, Then and the next one was the Christmas show with the kids. But two weeks after Aubrey had said no was when she said to the writers, forget about the finale this week. I have something special I'm going to do there. You don't have to plan anything. I've, I know what I'm going to do. And um, she didn't want it listed in the rundown. She didn't want CBS to get any word of it. And Thursday nights, they taped on Friday. Thursday night was always the orchestra call, and they'd go through all the music. And Judy did not sing her finale song, but the chorus was doing their part, and there's no question, the song was Battle Hymn of the Republic. Right. And um, she did it at the taping the next day, uh, got a standing ovation from the crowd. and said at dress rehearsal, she said, uh, before she sang the song, she said quite simply, this is for you, Jack. And by then, CBS had gotten word of it, and so she cannot say that. So, but, they, but she went ahead and did the song, and the audience stood up, people going nuts. And uh, two weeks after that show was telecast, less than two weeks after that tel- tel- show was telecast, CBS canceled it. Wow. So we're in the middle of January now. She's got seven shows to go. And she said to Bill Colloran, okay, I, I want to save money. Uh, I'm not going to fool around with these comedy guest stars anymore, and she said, and Bill Colleran said, I'm going to, we'll save the money on guest stars, I'm going to add 10 men to the orchestra, we'll put it on the stage behind you, and you'll do a concert. So show number 20 was a one-woman show, and it was so well-received that it was planned that at least two more of the next six shows would be one-woman concerts, and the other uh, shows left to do would be start with Judy in concert and then go to a musical guest, and then Judy and the guest would sing together. But it was just solid song. right? And uh, now, all the way through this show, the reviews were, were mixed, but everybody seemed to figure out what she was trying to do. You know, I, uh, at the height of all the controversy about the formats and the firings and all the rest of it, one of the reporters said... Uh, Miss Garland shows thus far have been even. Some have been brilliant. And, again, that was two different formats and two different producers. You know, again, yeah. it, it was just a question of, uh, again, yeah, they wanted to give her Don Knotts as a guest. They wanted to give her Andy right. Griffith as a guest. Crazy. They wanted to give her the Beverly Hillbillies as guests. And it was like, no, she wanted Bing Crosby and Noel Coward. And, and, um, and she got, you look at the litany of guest stars that she did get. One thing while I think of it, too, is that she had three primary African-American people on the show with her, Lena Horne, Diane Carroll, and Count Basie. Wow. Now, she puts her hand on Count Basie's after their first number, or shakes his hand. Uh, There's a later number that he plays at the organ and she sings. She takes his hand again at the end of that. Uh, She and Lena hold hands. She and Diane Carroll hold hands. Uh, never, uh, no hue and cry about any of that. She just, it was natural for her. She did it and nobody objected. I don't know if you not, may not be old enough to remember when Petula Clark and Harry Belafonte did a oh, special yeah. later in the sixties. And there was such hue and cry because they touched each other. Yep. I mean, it's anyway, crazy, uh, so, isn't it? It's just so yeah, crazy. Yeah. But, um, again, just off the top of my head, you know, the guest she had, Count Basie, Torme heaven help us, um, uh, Lena Horn, Tony Bennett, Dick Sean, Donald O'Connor, um, Steve Lawrence, Vic Damone three times, Jack Jones twice, Ethel Merman, Streisand, uh, Ray Bolger, uh, Steve Allen, I'm trying to think, you know, again, Diane Carroll, all of these amazing people you know, wanted to do the Garland show. Right. And, um, uh, one of the books on pop singing that has come out on the history of popular singing, one of the, they're looking back at uh, the pages on Judy say something to the effect that seldom in the history of television has popular song been served this well. Right. You know, as it was with the Judy Garland show. I mean, yeah. Porgy and Bess, West Side Story, um, Kismet medleys, um, all the great, you know, Harold Arlen songs in and Berlin and, and and then up to the minute stuff from Broadway, stuff from, you know, contemporary Broadway shows. It, it was all there. And um, she loved the concert shows. She loved, you know, more Lindsay behind her on stage and coming out and singing her songs. Some she'd done a lot of her standards, but a lot of things she'd never sung before. That's one of the great values of the Judy Garland show is that she is singing so much amazing material. And if you ask any Garland fan what the three best moments of the Garland show are, it's Battle Hymn, of course, and her first versions. She sang these two songs twice, but her first version of Old Man River and As Long As He Needs Me. Right Now, As Long As He Needs Me, perfect song for Judy Garland, but you do not expect a four-foot, 11-inch woman in an Edith Head sheath singing Old Man River. (laughs) That's very true. She did it and blew everything out of the water again. Um, But that's what the show should have been. From the beginning, that's what the show well, should have been. That, that was the finale of the first show, the first George Schlatter right. show with Mickey Rooney. Okay. Again, the way Schlatter put that show together, though, there was a big 10-minute wait. That was, the show wasn't telecast until weeks, weeks later, the one that was supposed to be the premiere. Right. And they had to pull out this god-awful sketch that Mickey and Jerry Van Dyke did together. And they dropped in a, a random T for two. No, what did they drop in? I'm trying to think now. Oh, then they had Mickey come back and do a sketch where he and Judy took off on their films together, which was charming. Again, written by the same people who wrote the Bob Newhart, right. Judy Garland, watching TV sketch. So, again, by the end, you know, the, the final taping, uh, she had, she wanted to do a big, it was a concert, but she wanted to do all this great material, and she wanted black tie, and she said, I'm coming out on time, and then uh, the week before, Sid Luff took her to court, Black Deadly Headlines, uh, Sid Luft Accuses Ex-Wife of Attempting Suicide 20 Times. Oh, my God. Yeah, front page. Yeah, of course. Front page. And um, she got around. This was just before the taping of Show 25, not Show 20. But again, it was all during this time. She she was so embarrassed. She got to CBS uh, on time for the orchestra call. She, but she said, I can't go down there and face these people after you know, everything that's been in the press the last 24 hours. She said, I haven't slept and, and Bill Colloran was like uh, the all-time gentle man in, in helping her along and calming her and soothing her and cheerleading her. And he really, genuinely loved her. He said it was, you know, this was, took a lot of effort, but he said it was worth it. And um, he, so he comforted her, and she, he, she kind of brightened up, and she said, I've got an idea. She said, we get the nurse up here and tell her to bring everything she's got. So when Judy walked into the orchestra call a half an hour later, she was bandaged up on crutches. The headline, Judy Garland Attempts Suicide 20 Times, was pasted across her chest. (laughs) And on the back was a big sign that said, help! That's great. And that's her idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, But the last show uh, was just, it was too much for her. And uh, it was taped in stops and starts from Friday night until early Saturday morning, and even then they didn't have enough for a full hour. So a week later she brought everybody back. She was hospitalized in between for a suspected appendicitis, and, um, but she insisted on checking out of the hospital and trying to finish the last show. She brought everybody back to CBS, the orchestra, the t- staff, everybody on her dime, you know her company was paying for this and tried to tape the 20 minutes they needed and just couldn't get through again she tried to do the whole born in a trunk routine from a star is born but it was just too ambitious if so she had done five of her standards she could have knocked it off but she was trying to do a memorable final show yeah and so the final show uh ended up with five numbers at the end that were lifted from earlier from an earlier episode um and that was that was the Judy Garland show um San Francisco's critics said you know the final Judy Garland show has come crackling across the air I can't I can't remember any in television's history where the show was so polished or the star shown this bright words to that effect wow. the critics knew they knew what she was doing and and the great quotes too um there's one from Ella Fitzgerald at the time who said, when I'm home on Sunday nights, I always try to catch the Judy Garland show. Has she been singing? It's just beautiful the way she's been singing. <laughs> and Mary Martin saying, um, I've never written a fan letter, but I'd like to write one to Judy Garland for the way her show's improved. Now she's bringing theater to television. Yeah. And then Lucille Ball, who was at, of course, CBS at the same time, said, I, I bet Judy Garland's glad her show is off. She said, I couldn't, I was furious when she was given ladies like, lines like, I'm a little old lady, and people talking about the next Judy Garland, you know. She, everybody knew, and um, yet, you know, the the failure of the show is always based on her. Yet, now we go ahead to 1998, 1999, when Pioneer Home Video started to put the shows out on DVD from the original master tapes, and all of a sudden, Everybody who didn't know this before has fallen in love with Judy Garland, the Judy Garland show. Right. Uh, I think it was someone, one of the critics from USA Today said this is the most important home video release of the year, maybe of all time. And, you know, that, you know this, this is proof positive that uh, the failure of the show had nothing to do with her. These are 26 great performances. Now, they're not. You know, she's much better on some shows than she is on others. But none of the shows is a complete disaster in terms of material, maybe. But it always ended up with Judy on the runway on the trunk bringing it home. Yeah. And um, but again, her dreams. One of the reasons Beagleman was able to convince her to do the series was that you can get off the road. you don't have to travel the country singing your guts out in concerts night after night. You can have a permanent home. And she did when she moved back to L.A. to do the series. She bought a home in Brentwood. You know, the kids were in school. She even tried reconciling with Sid one more time. Um, and, you know, in that spring of 63. And then, of course, by March of 64, he's taking her to court you know, 20 millions, 20 suicide attempts. Yeah, it's, it's so funny because all through the 60s, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66. He is trying to get her. The best way he knows how through the kids, you know. I want the kids. She can't take care of the kids. Of course, he's not working. He's got not a cent. And but he, you know, he's trying to get to what her. a piece and, of work. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. When she finally, <laughs> when she finally got her divorce, yeah, which was full custody of the kids. He had visitation, but she had to agree to pay him. I think it was like a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in al in, in Alamo. Oh. After he had taken every cent she made and gambled it away and thrown it away for a decade, um, it, it just—it was heinous. And um, and Beegelman and Fields basically deserted her once the show was up and floundering. They went off and courted Barbara Streisand as their new client. When <laughs> Judy was having the nightmare of trying to tape, trying to finish out the twenty-sixth show. Uh, they were here in New York for the opening night of Funny Girl. You know, Judy Garland, as Judy, laughingly, if if I would think a trifle sarcastically put it, she said, um, "You know, when Freddie and David signed her, uh, Freddie's company was called uh, Freddie Fields Associates, but quickly, with the success of Judy Garland in 1961, it became Creative Management Associates, CMA, right. and then International Creative. You know, again, it was all on her back." Yeah. that and and she would say when when they were riding high and she was not she, she said I remember when CMA was an answering service in my apartment <laughs> right uh, absolutely it's you get to understand I think with all the issues that Judy had throughout her life from childhood through MGM through everything you get to understand why the fact that she did as well as she did despite all of this is a miracle it's a mind-blowing thing seriously all the odds being stacked against this woman throughout her entire life from people abusing her and misusing her and all that sort of thing it's just astounding trusting the wrong men yes always the wrong men. yeah she definitely Uh, had a habit of doing that vincent minnelli sid david Beagleman, uh right down the line um and again june allison I'm, i'm sure i gave you this quote when we were talking before but um June Allison, when we interviewed her for the, uh, what was it? I guess the A&E Biography Special, She, I asked her about that, and she said, all this came out of her insecurity. You know, all those years of telling me she wasn't pretty enough. She wasn't shapely. You know, she's a 13-year-old girl, and there, you don't look like Lana Turner. You don't look like yeah. Ann Rutherford. You know, your uh, Louis Louis L.A. calls you his little hunchback. And so, and June said, you know, by the time she was an adult, she couldn't believe that any man would want her. Right. And so when any of them did, even if it was the least likely candidate, she was so thrilled that somebody would want her as a person. And of course, Vanelli, you know, had his own motivation in marrying her. He couldn't marry a bigger star uh, at MGM, and, um, you know, he'd had his greatest success with Meet Me in St. Louis with her, right. and, um, and then The Clock and that's when they got engaged and you know Sid was the all-time wheeler dealer yeah uh, again a quote i've used before he has refer- referenced he referenced himself until the day he died as her savior yeah i couldn't help judy nobody could and the the, the point nobody ever made when he was, Sid was bragging about being her savior is that she would have le- needed so much less saving if she had if married It wasn't somebody for him else. right Right. Somebody who had invested her money and paid the bills and paid the taxes and was was savvy and canny about that stuff. Sid pretended to know it all, uh, and he didn't. They knew nothing, right? Yeah, and then and then you go to those um, last five years of her life, and it is this roller coaster of great peaks and great valleys and. Um, hospitalizations and husbands and divorces and comebacks and uh bills and again she is slogging along uh, doing the best she can under all the circumstances she eventually goes back to sid for a year and a half to manage her because freddie and david have abandoned ship right and sid is su- suing them for the money he knows they took from judy and judy joins him in the suit uh but then uh, again he books judy overbooks judy all through 1967 doing concerts at a time when uh, again she was still using the same musical arrangements she'd used for 10 15 20 years and it was like no her voice had lowered right. everybody's voice lowers when they're in their by the time they're in their 40s sure. and if you smoke and and uh, as everybody did you know she she had lost maybe a note on the top she probably and she certainly had a note lower on the bottom did he ever think to this struck me when i was 13 years old why aren't they lowering the keys on her arrangements right why why should she be singing over the rainbow in a major in you know 1965 just because she sang it in a major in 1939 right absolutely and um uh, so again she was we all have to be responsible for ourselves. I understand that. And I think she understood it. And I think she tried to be as much as she could. All the times, you know, in 1965, in 1960... Uh, there were several times in the last years of her life when she went into... Not they didn't call it rehab. She would go into a, a psychiatric hospital because they didn't have rehab or right. the Betty Ford Center, and she would get herself off the medication. Again, her problem was pills, doctor prescribed pills. It was not alcohol. Uh, you know, she she drank, and as Peter Lawford said, there were times she drank too much, like all of us. But he said most of the time she didn't drink that much at all. But it was the medication—one kind working against another kind—the the Ritalin for a psychic lift that dried out her throat, the second all because she couldn't sleep after taking the Ritalin. Um, I was going someplace with this. Anyway, and then and then and <laughs> I then i spent half my life saying that, John. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and then July 1968, after Luft had been booking her again for a little over a year. Um, she broke with him because he was being arrested for passing bad checks and not paying her bills, and um she just broke away from him and uh he and his compatriots, who you know <laughs> were not exactly the most um honorable gentlemen in some cases, right. impounded her orchestrations so that she could not work. She had all kinds of offers for concerts in late nineteen sixty eight but she couldn't take them because she didn't have music Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was, he was saying, in effect, if you don't work for me, you don't work. Right. Swell. So she had a fan, a lovely girl named Ann Bryant, who was a student up at Berkeley, the College of Music, and started recreating orchestrations for her. Wow. And she was going with a songwriter here in New York named John Meyer, who got her on the talk shows, and she introduced four of his songs, and she got those orchestrations. She did a benefit at Lincoln Center honoring Harold Arlen, and got those orchestrations, so she was able to put together enough for the show that took her to London at the end of December '68. Right. And she did the five weeks at the Talk of the Town. She completed the engagement. It did not was not. She did not walk out in the middle. She was not fired in the middle. Thank you, Renee Zellweger. Um, <laughs> there you go. No, she um, again. Uh, she worked six nights a week for three nights in a row, for three weeks in a row. The fourth week, she was ill, no question, she was ill. But even then, she got there the first three nights of the week, and Thursday night, she was really under the weather, and, uh, but said, no, I've gotta go on. And she knew she was going she was a terrible timekeeper. The woman who, nothing like the woman in the Zellweger picture, who was her adjunct, supposedly at the time, there was a wonderful woman named Lorna Smith, uh, who had known Judy as a fan, and Judy came to know her and trust her as a friend, and Lorna was Judy's dresser every night at the talk of the town. They'd meet at the hotel and she'd go with Judy and Mickey Deans to the supper club and um was there and and you know Lorna said you know sometimes Judy you know was there in full voice, sometimes in half voice she said sometimes uh with a voice she described to the audience as having been left at the hotel, but always out there giving the best she had. Now, again, Talk of the Town, the atmosphere was total cigarette smoke, which is murderous on a singer. Oh, sure. So, again, everything was working against her. Nobody was taking care. You know, Lorna was doing the best she could, but she didn't have any control or power. Right. Hey. And that Thursday night, when she knew she was going to be late, she uh, asked the Talk of the Town management to explain that she, was, she apologized and she would get there. She got there 67 minutes late. The Talk of the Town had made no such announcement. Oh. She walked out strong, thinking her, thinking her apology had been made, and because people had had an extra hour to drink, there were three or four of the tables who were rowdy and started throwing, like, cigarette packets, empty packages of cigarettes on the stage, and Judy tried to get her way through three songs. Uh, a man stood up and grabbed the microphone from her, oh, and, God. Uh, and, then, and she said, no, this, she said, I've had it, you know, the, the, this is it, and she walked off just as somebody shattered a glass across the stage oh my god now this is what made international headlines judy garland you know walks off stage right yeah yeah, but no it 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 was she didn't do the show on friday and saturday she rested for four days she came back and did the whole last week the fifth week the talk of the town wanted her to stay over for a sixth week but she said no i'm really way too tired you know after this and and that was it but, again, she finished the engagement. Mickey Deans did not leave her during the engagement. They were still together. Um, it was the biggest business talk of the town had ever done, certainly the most publicity talk of the town had ever gotten. Right. And um, never in a million years would she have told off an audience with the kind of language that is used in the stage play End of the Rainbow on which the Zellweger film is based. Never in a million years did that happen. Right. Um trying to think what else about the the end there um you know she did the best she could night after night after night as lorna smith said pulling herself together every evening to be as much of judy garland as she could be right and then she did the three final concerts in um uh, sweden and denmark in march 10 minute standing ovation after the show in stockholm uh huge responses in malmo and copenhagen which was her last appearance she was booked for concerts in paris in may and had to postpone them and then finally had to cancel them because she was so frail and um as ray bolger said you know judy didn't die in june 1969 she just wore out yeah and again the 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 what i said earlier about the um no sign of cirrhosis, no alcohol in her system, just the um, remains of eight to ten secondol. You know, so four, of which, four or five of which she, would took to, she took to get four or five hours' worth of sleep. And then she'd get four or five hours' of sleep, and she'd get up and take four or five more to get some more sleep. Yeah. But she was so frail and so malnourished. The guy who did her um, autopsy he was found years ago in Australia. He had relocated, and he said it was malnutrition. As much as it was anything else. Yes, it was the pills, but it was because she was so frail. Mike Wallace, when they did a 60 Minutes thing on Judy about six years after she died, he talked about, you know, it wasn't a suicide. It was one sleeping pill, too many for a body that had become too frail. We're not finished yet. Check out part three of our interview with John Fricke, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to the show, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends about us. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.